Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As kids head online in bigger numbers and at younger ages, bullying has taken on vicious and direct new forms. But how to explain the growing phenomenon of young people who cyberbully themselves? And everyone knows the best place for a quickie wedding, or a quirky one, Las Vegas. Yet the number of marriages there, with Elvis presiding or even at a drive through is on the decline. We ask why weddings are waning. But first... As soon as Donald Trump became president, the trade relationship between America and China began to deteriorate. The world's two largest economies became embroiled in a bitter trade war. Liu He, China's vice premier and its chief negotiator, is in Washington to sign the initial stage of a trade agreement. The dispute has resulted in tariffs, or the threat of tariffs, on hundreds of billions of dollars of goods. It's shaken markets and threatened growth not only in China and America, but around the world. Although the details of the pact haven't been made public, the broad shape of it seems clear. And what's also clear is that there's still plenty of work to do to repair trade relations. We're expecting a few things from this phase one deal. Sumeya Keynes is our trade and globalization editor. We're expecting the Chinese to sign up to buy a lot of American stuff. We're expecting commitments on intellectual property. We're expecting something on on currency, um, currency manipulation. Uh, And then we're expecting a rather unusual chapter on enforcement, which will essentially set out how the U.S. can put tariffs on the Chinese if anything goes wrong in future. And at least a couple of those things have been the, the sort of sticking points for, for quite some time in, in this trade war. I mean, how, how did we get to this point? Oh, it's been a long journey. So in August of 2017, the United States Trade Representative started this investigation into China's trade practices and concluded that they were unfairly taking America's intellectual property and therefore tariffs were necessary. We will no longer tolerate such abuse. We will not allow our workers to be victimized, our companies to be cheated, and our wealth to be plundered and transferred. America will never apologize for protecting 
its citizens. The Chinese sat by stunned as the U.S. then proceeded to apply tariffs on $50 billion worth of Chinese imports. The Chinese retaliated. Then that spiraled and, and, and escalated to the hundreds of billions of dollars that, that we have today. And so now we're in a situation where we have this, this phase one deal. Only a limited fraction of the tariffs are going to be rolled back on January 13th, the U.S. decided to undesignate China as a currency manipulator. So, so that's nice. It was, it was very unclear that it was ever manipulating its currency in the way that the Treasury said in the first place. And so we have also in this deal a set of commitments that in theory are supposed to resolve some of those early concerns about intellectual property that were laid out in March of 2018. But what about the, the damage that's already been done, to both on the American and the, and the, the Chinese side, in terms of uh, effects on the economy? And do you think the terms of this deal will, will mitigate those? Well, the most obvious place to see the effects of this trade war are just in the, in the blunt trade flows between the two countries, which have fallen significantly. You can really see it in the data. The question of whether this deal will reverse those trends is an interesting one. I mean, clearly the managed trade, the the Chinese agreeing to buy lots of American stuff is designed to reverse the drop in U.S. exports to China. You know, one of the fears, though, is that that will just set up the American exporters to be just as dependent on China as they they were before and and to make them very vulnerable to a a deterioration in, in relations. You know, and the other thing that people have been saying has been damaging the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy, and, and the, even the global economy is all of the uncertainty that this trade war has infused into businesses' planning decisions. I am not sure that this deal, once it's signed, will immediately overnight inspire the confidence of all of those business executives to go back to, to business as usual. I think people are still feeling a bit nervous And so they're going to be watching to see how this thing plays out. And then finally, there are a lot of tariffs still in place. And so it doesn't look like there is as much of of an impulse to reverse the decline in U.S. imports from China. And the fact that this is being referred to as a a phase one deal suggests the likelihood that there will be a phase two, right? What what remains unresolved? What what will be the sticking points when it comes time to hammer out a phase two? The things that have been left out of phase one are the toughest things. So things like industrial subsidies, competition policy, those sorts of things. And it's not like there has been no work on these. In fact, the same week as this as this signing of the phase one trade deal, the EU's trade commissioner is in town on, on the morning of, of January 14th. The top trade people of the EU, Japan and the US released a, a joint statement essentially laying out how they want to see the global rules on subsidies changed. Now, Clearly, those rules are, have been written with China in mind. That you know, the ambition is to constrain the kinds of, of state-infused capitalism that operates in China that they think imposes damage on the economies of of the U.S., Japan, and the EU. So those those types of issues are being discussed. The big question is how you get the Chinese to sign on to any fundamental change in in their economic structure. And so I think for a while yet, we're going to see much more talk than than action. 
after all the rhetoric and the threats of this trade war, though, is, is do you think there's a pragmatic element to this now, both sides realizing that this has been self-defeating, or, or is it at its core still as pitched as it ever was? I think the phase one deal was negotiated with an understanding that it would be good for neither side to follow through with the final round of threats that was made. So if you remember, this phase one deal ended up effectively cancelling a round of tariffs that was due on, in mid-December. And that would have affected some very high value products like laptops and smartphones that would have been very, very difficult for companies to, to deal with. And, and the consumer and American consumers would have felt the effects of those. So I think at that point, there was a recognition that it was not in America's best interest to follow through with those threats. And so the phase one was a sort of, well, let's just bank what we can and avoid that destructive round of tariffs. Now, whether the US negotiators have fundamentally reevaluated their stance on, on whether kind of mutually beneficial cooperation is possible, I'm, I'm more skeptical. There are some fairly hardcore China hawks uh, in the administration. But I, I also expect that they are, you know, waiting to see how this, this deal is going to play out. And one ex-official I spoke to said, you know, the ball's in China's court. It's up to them to decide how they want relations to be. Samaya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Once, those who were bullied by peers at school at least had a temporary respite of home. But today, near-ubiquitous smartphone ownership among the young makes avoiding the bullies much harder. Cyberbullying, typically through social media, has become a major problem in the networked world. And now, a new form of online abuse has started to take place, confusing researchers and parents alike. On a Friday night in 2016, Natalie Natividad, a 15-year-old middle school student, took a fatal overdose of pills. Sarah Donnellan writes for The Economist. Her parents said that she'd been relentlessly cyberbullied with taunts that she was ugly and that she should kill herself. So her suicide prompted an investigation on the app where these abusive messages were reaching her called After School, where kids can anonymously discuss each other, and also interviews in her school of teachers and students. But there ended up being no bullies defined because the investigation revealed that Natalie had sent these messages to herself. So for some reason, she was actually bullying herself. That's right, and she's far from alone. Researchers have found that kids are increasingly bullying themselves anonymously online in a phenomenon that is called digital self-harm or digital munchausens or self-cyberbullying. And researchers have only really started looking into this in the last few years, and sort of high-profile cases like Natalie's of suicide have sparked greater interest in this, but 
up to 9% of American teens are thought to be anonymously sending themselves abuse online. And that's an increase from around 6% in 2016. So there's an upward swing here. And it takes the form of of, uh, anonymously posted abuse on these kinds of discussion boards. Right. So that's a common form of it that Natalie had been doing. Um, Many of the young people who admit to doing this do sort of send themselves insults in public ask-and-answer forums that allow users to be anonymous. A slightly more involved version is creating a second social media account and posting insults on one's own photos or something of that sort. And all of these sorts of digital self-harm in which kids sort of manufacture these messages is time-intensive version of other pretty common behaviors that teens engage in online. So there's something called sad phishing, which is posting sort of emotional confessions in the hopes that friends will comfort you in response to that post. There are less direct forms of digital self-harm in which, for instance, gay youth or people struggling with anorexia will seek out websites that demean them. And there's a very popular Reddit forum called Roast Me, which has 1.7 million members of all ages, sort of over 18, this is a bit older, who post photos of themselves and ask to be roasted or mocked in the comments. But why? I mean, why are these young people doing this at all? Well, I spoke to a couple young people, and one of them, Anna, who's now 20 and lives in Alabama, said that when she was 14, she had anonymously posted insults about her appearance on a website called Ask.fm, which is a public question-and-answer site. And her rationale was some of the most common that researchers have found. So the main reason, she said, was, quote, I just wanted someone to stick up and be there for me. So she wanted a reaction from other people and to see if anyone would um, stand up for her against this fictitious bully that she created. And the other reason was that she was insecure about her appearance and wanted to sort of manifest that in a way that she could express. And so that sort of putting on the keyboard, your internal self-loathing is a very common reason as well. So is there any indication of the the kinds of, of people that sort of the demographic of people who are doing this? I mean, all young people have insecurities. Yeah, that's right. I mean, from the limited research that's been done on this topic so far, there are some biographical details that make young people more likely to do this than others. One of the biggest is if a child has been cyberbullied by someone else then they are 12 times more likely to then cyberbully themselves. Another is being non-heterosexual. So gay youth are 2.75 times more likely than heterosexual youth. And sort of surprisingly, being male makes kids 1.3 times more likely as well. One of the possible reasons for this is that boys report much more than girls that they do this to sort of be funny. But as Elizabeth Englander, the director of the Massachusetts Aggression Reduction Center, told me she thinks that there's something deeper going on here, which is that boys have fewer legitimate ways to get attention and sympathy. Beyond this, there is a connection to suicidal thoughts in teens and depression and drug use, but that's sort of all we know so far. But the thing about cyberbullying more generally is that it's 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 harder to see. It's not the same as the old-fashioned schoolyard taunts, right? And 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 this is is no different, or perhaps even worse in that regard. Is there is there something that parents or, or educators should be looking out for? 
Yeah, this is really tricky to respond to. As you say, cyberbullying is hard to identify. And in this case, even once you identify it, you're not punishing anyone. It's hard to know what to do. In terms of what parents and teachers should be on the lookout for, it's really understanding that digital self-harm is a common phenomenon and that their child might be suffering from it. Social media companies have started to direct at-risk users to support. So Tumblr, the blogging website, for instance, has helplines next to anorexia search results. And the broader point is that knowing the digital self-harm should not diminish the validity of any bullying reports that a kid makes. That's kind of one of the risks of this becoming more common knowledge. Because as the experts I talked to told me, whether or not a kid is actually being bullied by someone else, whenever they are digitally self-harming, that means that they're struggling with something. And parents and teachers and people who care about those kids need to take this seriously and try to get at what's prompting them to do this in the first place. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Las Vegas is known for its gaudy lights, luxury-themed hotels, and endless gambling options. But it's also the self-proclaimed wedding capital of the world. Couples like Sara and Al, looking for something a bit different for their big day, have long headed to Sin City. The chapel were great. They picked us up in a limo. Elvis walked me down the aisle singing Love Me Tender, which was probably one of the most surreal but funniest moments of my life. And then I promised to uh, never step in your blue suede shoes. And I promised to always be your teddy bear. <laughs> they then introduced us to the world by opening doors and having our name in lights. The world consisting of, I think it was a passing taxi driver and a homeless dude. Bizarrely, that was legal. <laughs> Las Vegas has been an easy place to get married for a long time. Olivia Williams writes about culture for The Economist. You could have a very elaborate wedding that's themed, which a lot of couples go for that are very expensive and they're almost like stage productions. Very popular ones include Star Wars or Game of Thrones. And then you can have a very straightforward 10-minute slot that you don't have to book ahead for. You don't have to bring any friends because they can provide witnesses. They also have drive throughs so you can stay in your car, in the air conditioning, in the heat, and you don't need to move. But these days, marriage nationally in the US is in decline, and this has had a huge effect. A lot of chapels are now trying to fill out their schedules with different kinds of ceremonies to make up for all these gaps. So why the decline in particular in the in the Las Vegas wedding? I mean, it's still fun. So against the national backdrop of millennials either delaying marriage altogether, because they're in their 20s and 30s, they may yet do it, but they're not doing it at the same time that their parents did. And then Las Vegas itself might be suffering from an image problem because some of the wedding chapel owners complained to me about the hangover franchise and the image that that's created. It's been very successful in selling itself as a party town, but then people are starting to find that jarring with the idea of a romantic lifelong commitment. This idea of drunken mistakes and weddings don't really sit very comfortably together. Another reason could be that in the 80s and 90s, it was a countercultural, rebellious thing to do, to have a quickie wedding, as exemplified by a lot of celebrities of the time. Now that a lot of vow renewals and second marriages are happening there, I think it's lost a bit of that sheen. How big is the decline? How big is the problem? Since the 2004 peak, 
it's dropped 42% among 20- and 30-year-old couples. They haven't found a way to stop the decline. They've been trying lots of different ways to market the place in a more romantic way, and that hasn't worked. A chunk of the marriage licence, that goes towards the Wedding Tourism Fund. That's a whole marketing body that is supposed to be trying to compete with Hawaii and other romantic destinations. They also were trying to get Chinese couples to come over to get married, and they're having some success with that but from a very low base, and then the trade war has really killed that off. And what about the wedding chapels themselves? Are they doing anything different to lure in happy couples? The Viva Las Vegas wedding chapel, they, for example, now offer 14 variations on the standard Elvis package that they used to offer. They've still seen their revenue decline every year for the past 10 years. So they've also branched out into different themes too. So Ron Dakar, who owns the chapel and is an Elvis impersonator, he will now dress as pretty much anything that you can think of and try to accommodate that theme. They offer live streaming to try to make sure that all of your friends and family who didn't know that you were getting married (laughs) can watch along from home, hopefully supportively. And there's also the pretend wedding for people who, like many millennials, are not ready to commit to anything yet, but they want to have all the thrill of getting married. But they are trying all the time to get millennials interested, including a pop-up marriage license bureau at the local airport to try to inspire the idea when you're waiting at baggage reclaim that it might be a good idea to get married. They have jewellers there, they have dress shops, they have liquor stores And they have the Marriage Licence Bureau, so that's everything you you barely need need to leave the airport. (laughs) Yeah, just hop in a taxi, get to a wedding chapel, no booking. Chewbacca's already waiting for (laughs) you to to actually do the deed. Yeah. Olivia, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.